Well, we are returning to our study in the Gospel of Mark today. We want to revisit a portion of chapter 1 that we briefly mentioned a few weeks ago. So chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark. The, uh, the origin of demons has been a matter of discussion and speculation uh, among, uh, for, for centuries, not just among Bible students, but also among the unbelieving world. Most everyone recognizes the existence of demons, although there are some folks who think that the supernatural world is not even real, and it's just a figment of the imaginations of the uneducated. Uh, Of course, folks who believe the Bible know that the supernatural world is very real, and most other folks recognize the very real existence of demons. You know, the ancient Greeks believed that demons were the spirits of the dead who had lived evil lives while on earth. And then they continued to be evil in the afterlife. Some folks with limited Bible knowledge believed that demons were the spirits of a deceased race of people who lived before Adam and Eve. Uh, Both of those theories are totally unbiblical, uh, but there are some versions of them that are still with us today. Biblically, it appears that demons are spirit beings who were thrown out of heaven when Satan was cast out of heaven. They apparently followed him in his rebellion, thus we often call them fallen angels. They were created as as, as, uh, angels, as Satan also was, and they were cast out of heaven with him when he rebelled against God and tried to take over God's position of sovereign authority. Now, to we who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, it seems incredibly foolish for something or someone who was created to think that they could overthrow its, its creator. How can something created overthrow its creator? It doesn't even make logical sense, particularly to we who know Christ. Yet that's what Satan apparently did, and he convinced a number of other angelic beings to join his rebellion. We won't take the time to demonstrate that to you from a couple of Old Testament passages. The reason why we believe that's that's what happened with Satan, uh, or we'd be here till 3 o'clock this afternoon, but we might do that sometime. But in Matthew chapter 12, Satan is referred to as the ruler or the prince of the demons. He is also called in Ephesians 2, 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the Bible calls Satan the god of this world, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. He is a deceiver. He is a liar from the beginning, as Jesus called him in John chapter 8. But Satan is not omnipresent, meaning present everywhere. He can only be in one place at a time. He is not omniscient, all-knowing, as God is. He is highly intelligent, we might even say intellectually brilliant, and it might even be safe to say he's probably a lot more intelligent than we are. But he is not omniscient. He is obviously not omnipotent, meaning having all power, because he is a created being. Only the sovereign God and creator of all things is omnipotent. But because Satan is not omnipresent, because his presence is not everywhere, he uses the demons to carry out his evil schemes. They attack the Lord's people. They try to thwart the purposes of God, which we saw very clearly in our study of Daniel many, many months ago. 
They promote false doctrine. The Apostle Paul spoke in 1 Timothy 4.1. He referred to the doctrines of demons. Uh, they, the demons afflict and oppress and persecute the people of God. And when you research Daniel chapter 10 and Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 and Revelation 16 and other passages... It is very easy and reasonable for us to conclude that there is a cosmic warfare going on in the spirit world, and there are some demons who are powerful enough to sway the affairs of nations. The details of what all that may mean in the geopolitical affairs of the world is probably impossible for us to clearly know, but we can certainly see the influence of the forces of hell in our world today, certainly in our society. So very interestingly, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, he begins his account of the actual ministry of the Lord Jesus with a confrontation with the forces of hell. Jesus has already faced down the devil during his 40 days in the wilderness that we spoke of a few weeks ago. But now he is going to directly confront a demon. And so let's begin to read today Mark chapter 1. I know you have your place there. We're going to begin to read in verse 21 and we'll go to verse 28. A relatively short section. Mark 1 verse 21 to 28. Then they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee, one of the great understatements of the Bible. Obviously, immediately his fame spread throughout all the regions around Galilee. Mark's purpose, we believe, in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus with this, with this demonic encounter in a synagogue, it is to demonstrate that if we are going to accept Jesus Christ as the King, as the Messiah, then he must be able to exercise power over the God of this world, over the prince of the power of the air. The Messiah must be able to break the bondage that Satan and his demons have over human beings and their souls. So Mark begins with this fascinating account of Jesus overpowering a demon. And it wasn't a wrestling match, it was even, it was even not, I wouldn't even call it a contest, barely even a contest. Because by the power of his words, Jesus totally dominated the forces of hell. And this is essential if Jesus Christ is going to come and establish his kingdom. He has to overpower the current ruler of this world, who is none other than Satan and the demons who carry out his orders. 
So Jesus' authority has to extend beyond just human authority. He must have universal authority. He's got to have spiritual authority. You might even call it cosmic authority. In order to, to rescue us from the kingdom of the devil and to bring us into the kingdom of God, Jesus has to exercise power over Satan's forces, and he has to do it in a way that people could see it. So let's kind of dissect this story a piece at a time. And I want you to see the amazing power of the Lord Jesus. We want to be amazed by Jesus' teaching, and we want to be overwhelmed by his power. The first phrase there in verse 21, they went into Capernaum. Well, who's the they? They went into Capernaum. Well, it's Jesus and the disciples that he had just called to follow him. In the preceding verses, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They are with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are following him. He is their, he is their rabbi now that they have chosen to follow. And so, and so they, they join this, this unknown but brilliant young rabbi called Jesus of Nazareth. And they are about to be exposed in those early days to his incredible spiritual power. They go into Capernaum. In, in Hebrew, it's Kafar Nahum. Nahum, just like the Old Testament prophet, Kafar means village. So it's Nahum's village or the village of Nahum. Kafar Nahum or we comes into English as Capernaum. It was, it was a very busy fishing port located on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, just a few miles from the point where the northern part of the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. That's why Jesus' four fishermen disciples lived there. It was not only a busy, a busy fishing port, it was located in a spot where two caravan trade routes intersected. So there was a Roman garrison of soldiers, a tax collecting station for the traveling caravans to pay their business tariffs to Rome. It was an active place and appears throughout the Gospels to be the headquarters for the ministry of the Lord Jesus there in Capernaum. They go into the synagogue. Now you may know that there were no synagogues in the Old Testament. All worship of the Lord in the Old Testament centered around the temple. But, but when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple... And uh, in 586 B.C., and when the Jewish world then went 70, uh, 70 years in, in Babylon, after that was over, Hebrew people were scattered all over the Greek and Roman world. So even though the temple had been rebuilt, there remained these gathering places for Jewish people in every city where there were at least 10 Jewish heads of household, 10 husband fathers. In fact, synagogue is the... English version of the Greek word synagogue, meaning gathering place. And the Jewish historian Josephus said there were about 240 towns and villages in Galilee, and every one of them had at least one synagogue. The Talmud, which is some Hebrew writing, said there were several hundred synagogues right in Jerusalem. So synagogues were, were all over Israel in the first century. And I just tell you that because when you read the Old Testament, you never see the word synagogue. They didn't exist. They didn't come into existence until after the 70-year the captivity. So you start in, in, in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of a sudden there's synagogues all over the place. Because they kind of rose up in that intertestamental period. And so there are, they are everywhere used as local fellowship areas for teaching and training and discussion of the law of Moses and other Old Testament scriptures. 
And it was very, very common for visiting rabbis who may be in, in your town to speak and teach if they happened to be in your town on the Sabbath when the synagogues would gather. So Jesus enters this synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath, and they say, oh, here's a visiting rabbi. Let's have him speak to us. And so they were all astonished, not simply at his knowledge, but with the authority, the presence, the confidence in his explanations of the law. He wasn't like the scribes, the ordinary readers of the law. The, the scrolls were kept in the synagogue. They were read every week publicly by the scribes. Then they explained it. The scribes kind of prided themselves on knowing all of the different opinions about the way certain parts of the law should be understood. But Jesus' teaching was so clear that he left his listeners in this state of amazement with his absolute conviction of the truth. But there's someone in the synagogue who is possessed by a demon. And there's a number of things that should kind of strike you about that. If it hasn't struck you yet, hopefully by the time I get done telling you what struck me, it'll strike you too. There's a demon in the synagogue. First of all, the first thing that strikes me is this. Jesus' teaching authority astonished the people, but terrified the demons. The people were amazed, but the demons panicked. Why, you may wonder? Well, because the demons didn't know who Jesus... I mean, sorry, the, the, the people didn't know who Jesus was, but the demons did. And notice that the demon uses plural pronouns. Us and we, he's talking about. He was the one speaking, but there were apparently other demons present. And in the first, you know, it's, it's interesting. In, in, in fact, I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago in one of my messages. But in, in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, the only beings who were sure who Jesus was were the demons. They, they know him. They have known him since they were created by him as angels. They have known him since they were dwelling in heaven as holy angels before they rebelled. They have known him since they were surrounded, uh, since they all surrounded the, 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 uh, the, the throne of God before Lucifer led them in their rebellion. So there is no question at all about their knowledge of Jesus. So we have then the very first testimony in the Gospel of Mark regarding the identity of Jesus, and it comes from a demon. The Pharisees didn't know who Jesus was. The scribes didn't know who he was. Most of the people couldn't figure out who he was. Even his own disciples weren't sure, weren't totally sure for a while. The crowds were amazed, but the demons were terrified. And when, when an unsaved person comes to a true understanding of who Jesus is, then they are going to come to a true understanding of the authority of Christ as the Son of God, and they should be scared. It's called conviction of sin. And, and it should lead a person to run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. You know, there are some people out there who say it's, it's just terrible for a person to feel guilty. Well, you know what? The Bible says that our sin should give us a sense of guilt. There should be a holy reverence for the righteousness of God. There should be a desire to come to Him for forgiveness. And if we can live in open sin and it never bothers us, and we can just do anything we want, anytime we want, and just live in open sin, and it, and it never phases us, we have got some serious spiritual issues. But when we have a sense of the burden of sin 
and we realize that we are under the judgment of God, then we should be motivated to come to Christ for forgiveness so the burden can be lifted. You may know the verse in James chapter 2 and verse 19. James wrote, do you believe in God? He says, that's good. The demons believe and tremble. Now what makes the demons tremble? What makes the demons scream? By the way, this, this word here in verse, uh, verse 23, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out. And then when Jesus threw him out of verse 28, he says he cried out with a loud voice. Both of those words there, uh, we probably cried out, may not be a strong enough word in English, but this Greek word translated cried out it is what we would think of as a scream. It was a loud cry filled with emotion. And you know, anytime you go through the Gospels, when Jesus confronted demons, they're always screaming. They, 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 they scream because they are terrified of Jesus. They know where they're headed. They know about the lake of fire. They knew about the lake of fire long before Jesus referred to it in Matthew 25. They knew about the lake of fire, and they know that they're going there. Long before the book of Revelation was written to describe it in chapter 20, they know about it because they knew about it from the time they were thrown out of heaven. They know that's where they're headed. They know their destruction is coming. They are terrified and they can't resist screaming. And so, so he screams, what have we, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? They know where they're headed. That's why they're screaming in this, in this terror. Another interesting thing about the situation, about this circumstance, the, the demons don't attack Jesus during his ministry. They attack the human souls of unsaved people. That's what they've always done. They will always do that. They don't attack Jesus. Jesus attacks them just by showing up. Jesus is not out there demon hunting. He just shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he blows their cover. Demons are, are invisible to us, but they, of course, are not invisible to the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, they scream because of the terror that grips them. And I want you to think about this, too. Demons were in the synagogue. Satan is an angel of light, and all his ministers are disguised as angels of light, the Apostle Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 11. Demons often hide in religion. You see, the, the, the last thing a demon would want to do is reveal himself in a synagogue because the whole idea of being an angel of light is covering yourself in a religious environment. And, and in every false religion, demons dwell. In, in one way or another, they possess, they oppress, they deceive. False teachers are demon-directed, spouting doctrines of demons by supernatural demonic power. Demons go to church. They probably attend every false religious service. They may even be present when the Bible is being preached. You don't see them. I don't see them. You won't see them. We don't know. They don't reveal themselves because if they revealed themselves, they would be exposed for what they are. But Jesus exposes them by simply showing up and they cannot restrain their terror in his presence. 1 John 3.8, if you're writing things down, write that reference down. We won't look it up today. But 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 says this, The Son of Man appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
Great thought from the Apostle John. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose, he says, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You see, you and I have two great eternal needs. One is we need a sacrifice for our sin. We need a substitute who will pay the penalty for our sin so we don't have to pay the penalty of our sin. And then secondly, we need somebody who has the power to rescue us from the dominion of Satan. And so the Lord Jesus Christ left heaven and he entered this world to be the sacrifice for our sins on the cross and to demonstrate his power to destroy the grip of Satan and his demons and rescue sinners. You see, the, the demons know why Jesus is there. They know the battle is on. They know the kingdom is coming because the king is there. And they are well aware that that could mean that their destruction is right around the corner. They don't want to expose themselves, but they can't help it when they are confronted by Jesus. And his invincible power over them becomes quite obvious. Another principle I want us to think about is this, and that is Satan hates the truth. Demons hate the truth. The truth smashes their grip on people. The truth shines the light into their darkness. The truth breaks down their fortresses. The truth opens the eyes of people that they have kept in bondage. And notice when Jesus casts this demon out, there, there's no discussion there's no negotiation, there's no magic formula, there's no prayer, there's no exorcism, as people might say. Just the absolute authoritative power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, he says shut up and leave. That's basically what he says. Be quiet and leave. You know, there's, there's and this may, I know this will be controversial to some folks and some of our friends. There's no such thing in the Bible as an exorcism. No such thing. Jesus commanded demons, and they had to do what he said. Because he's God. He, he's, the, he's their creator. Jesus just commanded demons, and they had to do what he said. There's no formula, no mighty wrestling in prayer. He says, just get out, and they had to go. And Jesus delegated that power to his disciples, and they did the same sort of thing to a lesser degree. I should say to his apostles, not necessarily all the disciples, just to the twelve apostles. And you know, demon possession was never mentioned in the Old Testament. But you see it several times in the Gospels, in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus knew where the unclean spirits were, and he commanded them whenever he encountered them. The only people who were demon-possessed were always unbelievers, and the synagogues were apparently being influenced by demonic doctrines and ideas. Demonic stuff is fairly common in the Gospels, but you only see demon possession in two occasions in the book of Acts, and it's never mentioned in the epistles, the teaching letters, the New Testament. So, so it, is, it is a misunderstanding of the Bible for folks today to try to figure out if somebody's demon-possessed and then try to throw out the demon. There is no instruction in the teaching letters of the church as to how to do that, nor is there any teaching that even suggests that we should even try. You see, the, the New Testament approach to demonic influence is not exorcism, it is evangelism. It is the preaching of the gospel, the proclaiming of the truth that frees people from the bondage of Satan and his demons. It is, it is obedience to God's word that sets us free. You will know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will set you free. 
James 4 says to resist yourself or, or uh, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil. That is our command, to resist the devil. As Paul said in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. He talks about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is the biblical way to fight the devil. You submit to God and you resist the devil with faith in God's word, the truth, and your obedience to it. Look at verse 28 again. Immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. And that was just the beginning. Just look down at verse 39 right across the page. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Jesus is going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue all over the region of Galilee, that northern part of Israel, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and throwing all the demonic influences out of the synagogue, because he knew exactly where they were. You see, Jesus put on this display of supernatural power that was absolutely shocking. But you know what the great tragedy was? Most folks were astonished at his teaching and amazed by his power, but they never submitted to his authority. Many people today just like that. They are astonished at what Jesus says. They are amazed at the power of God, but they have never submitted to his authority. And those astonished, amazed people are going to wind up in the same hell as the terrified demons. The demons knew who Jesus was, and they couldn't be saved. Their, their, their doom is sealed. Most of the people didn't believe who he was, and they wouldn't be saved. They refused to be. So where do you stand today? If you know Jesus, if you know who Jesus really is, have you submitted to his authority over your life? Don't just be astonished at the Bible. Don't just be amazed at the power of God. You have got to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. You might be curious. You might be amazed. You might be astonished. You, you may understand a lot of the facts and information about Jesus. But until you have submitted to his authority in your life, you are not forgiven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Remember the song we, we played it last week, No More Night? Beautiful, beautiful song. And on the second verse of that song, it says, See all around the nations bow down to sing. The only sound is the praises to Christ our King. Slowly the names in the book are read. But I know the King, so there's no need to dread. See, we will all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And Jesus Christ will either be our Savior or our Judge. So as Jesus himself preached back in verse 15 of chapter 1, we must repent and believe the gospel. Don't just be astonished at his teaching and amazed at his power. You've got to submit to his authority. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your incredible power. 
Because we know, Lord, it's that power that can free us from the bondage of the devil. It's that power that can break the chains that bind so many of our, our loved ones. And if we know Christ as Savior, used to bind us. Not just chains of addiction, not just chains of habit, but, Lord, chains of false ideas, chains of false beliefs, chains that bind us of false theology, the doctrines of demons, as Paul's called them, that teach us that we can somehow work our way to heaven, that we can somehow be good enough all on our own to please God. Lord, we know those are the doctrines of demons. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. I'm thankful, Lord, that he has destroyed the works of the devil in so many of our lives. And we pray, Father, for our friends and loved ones who desperately need Christ. And Lord, if there is someone here this morning who maybe is interested in the Lord Jesus, maybe curious about the Lord Jesus, maybe knows a lot of facts and details about the Lord Jesus, but they've never really submitted to the authority of the Lord Jesus. I pray that they would do that this day and receive the forgiveness of sins that only can come through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.